Hello and welcome to another episode of Revisiting the Oscars. It's 2004 that we're going to be discussing this time. As always, I am your host, Luke Watson, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Richard Mason and Scott Bingham. How are we doing today, folks? Uh, All good here in uh, Dublin. Come out of lockdown today. I'm going to the cinema on Thursday. Life's life's looking pretty rosy. It's not not bad from from my, my neck of the woods. Voices go in the day, I think I've been talking too much and it's absolutely chanking outside, it's freezing. <laughs> You're talking too much, Bingham. I would not believe that. <laughs> I start to get a bit hoarse. I don't know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I blame the weather rather than talking too much. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're into two thousand and four this time. Now we'll obviously have Bingham's Blast from the Past, a highlight of the, the show, as the listeners know. So two thousand and four was re-election year in America, which is quite topical, given America has just came out of an election just now. Uh-huh. You had the Iraq war being the big story, which the UK was drawn into. And as any of the 2000s episodes show, we are at an age when we can pretty much remember some stuff about the time. So for me, I was 16 at the time. We did do 2005 a few episodes ago, so I don't think I was doing a huge amount different at this time. Probably creating option files for Pro Evo and playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto, mainly. Yeah, this is a bit of a uh, touching on uh, Scotty Bingham's blast from the past, but I'm going to take you back to September 2004, because this, as eagle-eared listeners might remember, was the year I started university. So September 2004, I'm in Our Price in Wigan, which is a poor man's version of HMV, which didn't exist in Wigan at the time. And I'm about to start uni, and I want to get some posters for my dorm room that make me look cool so I can make all the friends and get all the girls, right? So here are the three posters that I got, and these were on my wall for a full year. Number one was a picture of Homer Simpson holding a beer, saying the cause and solution to all life's problems, which, looking back, is A, very, very cringe, and also, as you boys know, I'm not even a big boozer. What am I doing? (laughs) Number two is, again, poster size these. This was a a picture of 50 Cent holding a gun. (laughs) And uh, by the way, he's topless. He's topless in the photo, 50 Cent. And um, poster number three, topical to this podcast, was a film poster. Now, I've got a film poster up in my flat here, and it's all the singing in the rain, which is my favourite film of all time. But when you're 19, that's not going to get you the girl singing in the rain, is it? So I had the film poster of Rocky, <laughs> which I'd never even seen it. I'd never even seen it. <laughs> Just thought it, people will come into my room and be like, look at this guy, he likes rap music, he watches Rocky, he drinks beer. I'm going to be his mate. Did it work? Uh, let's uh, leave that one up to the listeners' imagination. <laughs> I wasn't going to add anything else from 2004, really. I was similar to you, Wattie, same age, listening to Libertines constantly, which you know I could probably mention in every single year up to the present, to be honest, as well as Grand Theft Auto. I was going to add that there was a mystery at my school involving Grand Theft Auto, where oh. one of the guys who was in my year at school was off, absent for many months and, and had the nickname Dead Man. He then randomly <laughs> appeared as if nothing was wrong and all he'd, all he'd been doing was playing Grand Theft Auto for like three months solid. <laughs> what? 
did he not his parents not fancy sending him in? No, no. It was more important than it learn how to use a chainsaw. Did he complete it at least? I, I, I fucking hope so. I think I, I think I could have spent three months trying to learn how to fly the bloody aircraft and the Grand Theft Auto <laughs> things, and it, I still wouldn't have got there. Ah, oh, two thousand and four, when you had no problems. Oh, to be back in two thousand and four. <laughs> so Bingham's blast from the past time. Come closer. Come closer. Come, 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 come. So, close your eyes and visualise this. It's the end of a busy week and you're knackered. So you slip off your rug boots, toss away your Von Dutch cap and get on your lovely pink velour, juicy couture tracksuit. It's a night in. You deserve it. You're a good person. Unselfish, a giver to charity, is signified by your little yellow Livestrong wristband that you paid £2 to wear with pride. It's also steak night, just like every other night on the Atkins diet. But what do you do? Read the new Dan Brown Da Vinci Code novel? Watch the late, the last ever episode of Friends? Nope, you choose to fire up the internet and crack open a reef. The latest news is up. The top story is Janet Jackson's tit is exposed by a wardrobe malfunction during the Super Bowl. However, you're classier than this trashy news. You go to read the real news of the day that Britney Spears has just got divorced 55 hours after getting married. Next stop is MySpace, but you're sick of some guy called Tom being shown as one of your top 10 pals. Who is that nosy prick, you think to yourself? You're starting to get pissed. (laughs) Next reef, you stick a straw in it and drink it in two seconds flat while spinning around your house yourself. The rest of the night is a haze and you wake up in your computer chair. There's a page open on eBay with the message congratulations, you have won the auction. You open the page to discover your worst fears. You have just paid $28,000 for a toasted cheese sandwich with the image of the Virgin Mary on it. Best just come back to sleep. <laughs> that could have been an excerpt from my diary from that year, honestly. I had a Von Dutch hat. <laughs> I went to Did you have a in... No, I didn't. I also, I remember dabbling in eBay. I remember selling my PlayStation, but then not selling it, as in not sending it to the person that I sold it for and just pocketing the 150 quid. I, I went to Magaluf in the summer of 2004 with my Von Dutch cap on and went to watch Tim Westwood at uh, BCM, biggest biggest club in Magaluf. And he <laughs> he signed my arm, Tim Westwood. So I had a, a signature on my arm in the... Uh, I can't think of uh, many things less cool than having Tim Westwood's (laughs) autograph on your arm. I I was going to say BCM, I've I've been sick in there. BCM, yeah. That that holiday, we'll get onto the the films at some point, but the holiday was also famous because it was a classic lads holiday where one of the lads' mums bought him a multi-pack of condoms to take with him. And (laughs) it was a 12-pack of condoms. We were only gone for a week, by the way. And uh, between eight of us who were on that trip, we used no condoms. <laughs> and not, not by the way, because we were uh, being fruity and not using them. Purely because none of us, uh, none of us got lucky. I, I think the, the fact that you're using words like fruity probably articulates <laughs> you maybe had some difficulty in that. That regard. was cool in 2004, mate. <laughs> did, you, did you not take your um, postals with you? you put them I up know, that, was a mis- that was my mistake. 
So we will move on to the films now. So before we get into the, the five Oscar films this year, which are, of course, The Aviator, Ray, Sideways, Finding Neverland and Million Dollar Baby, we'll do our usual rundown of the, the kind of top five or top ten, but we'll do the top five for 2004. So number five on the list at the US box office this year was The Passion of the Christ. Have either of you even seen this film? I've heard about it. Not seen it, though. No, I've not seen it. I know, but I know the meme of it. That's about all about I know. The meme of Mel Gibson talking to Jesus when he's all bloody, and it's supposed to be about mansplaining or something. But yeah, not seen the film. It's not really a film that people talk about much these days, though. But did well at the time, fifth at the box office. Not bad for a film about Jesus on the cross. <laughs> and not in not in English either. I think is it not the highest grossing non-English film or something like that? Yeah, it could well be. Yeah, it's could up well there be. anyway. Number four on the list is The Incredibles which is the Pixar film, also won Best Animated Film at the Oscars this year. Must say, I like Pixar films. Pretty much indifferent to this one, to be honest. Oh, the, the Guardian really, really say like this, this is one. the best ever Pixar film. That's clearly rubbish. There's <laughs> In a world when you've got Up and you've got Wall-E, let alone like Inside Out or Toy Story, The Incredibles being the best is just absolute rubbish. I thought it was, you know, that's when Disney Pixar was in an absolute role, though, because you had, like, Monsters, Inc. was before it, Toy Story, obviously. I, I honestly thought The Incredibles was really good. Perfect. Yeah. I don't even like superhero films, but, you know, it's a cartoon film, and it's, it's, it's good. Appeals to adults as well as kids. Yeah. Number three on the list, Spider-Man 2. I imagine you like that, Mason. Um, no no th- thoughts on that. This is Tobey Maguire, isn't it? Yeah, there's been about 20 Spider-Man films since then. Not interested in that. They, they all blend into one. It's the kind of film that you watch at like Christmas. Your wee sister's just got the DVD about five years after it's came out. Yeah, I've probably seen it. I just can't, can't remember it. Not sure I've ever seen it, to be honest. But I've definitely seen the film at number two, which is, as I'm sure is going to become a recurring theme as we go through the 2000s, is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So we, I'm sure we talked about The Goblet of Fire a few weeks back. Azkaban's probably one of the better films out of the early years anyway. Alfonso it's the best Cuarón. one, I would say. It's the best one, yeah. I was going to yep. say it's the best one. bit darker. bit of the, the Dementors. It, they, they needed a film like this to move away from the first couple of films, which are, are very child-friendly. Yeah, the kids are just about learning how to act in this film as well. <laughs> That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. That is true. But it wasn't number one at the box office, actually, and, and by quite some distance, number one at the box office this year was Shrek 2. Mm-hmm. Indifferent to Shrek, to be honest. The first first one was pretty good. I mentioned it to the wife, Sarah, she was like, that's the best one, that's brilliant. I was like, I can't remember <laughs> it. I, I, I'd like to be in the head of someone that has a ranking of the best Shrek films. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she does like Disney and all that kind of thing, so... Yeah, they were decent at the time. In terms of the Oscars, uh, there, there was a couple of films that maybe just touch on that were nominated, but not for the big prize. So Foreign Language, interesting one this year. You had a film called The Sea Inside One. The Motorcycle Diaries, which is about Che Guevara's early years, was nominated. And Downfall, which of course is the film that has been made famous more for the, the spoofs of it with Hitler in the Bunker than the film itself, which is actually a pretty good film. And Moving on then, there was a couple of films that were nominated for Best Picture but nominated for a few Oscars, but one in particular that I just wanted to bring up because I think it's an obvious exception to the the films that should be on the list. It did win Best 
original screenplay and that is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind which for my money is one of the most original and thought provoking movies of the 20th century with a genuinely great dramatic performance from Jim Carrey It's another Charlie Kaufman story isn't it who also did Being John Malkovich It's one of those films that like you said thought provoking is a very good way and it's just a joy to look at and watch through time I think it's got more popular as a bit of a cult film yeah, I've, I saw it when it came out. I don't think I've seen it since. I feel like I would probably get more from it watching it again. I don't know if either of you two watched it recently and you, you had that experience. Yeah, so I rewatched it a couple of weeks ago, maybe. And yeah, it was, it was really, really good. I'd been looking for an excuse to rewatch it, so this was, was it. I've got one little um, film. So 2004 was The Punisher. Have you seen The Punisher? Seen the TV series? No, no. It, it's, it was like a Marvel... Sorry, yeah, so I started that early. So the Punisher, I'm not sure how funny this will be, but there's a scene from it that ma- the <laughs> villain makes the oddest noise I've ever heard anyone <laughs> making a film. So you have two of the, the main characters. So Frank Castle, I think the guy's name is, and he's uh, in a one-to-one hand sort of combat. And I'm just going to play this through through my mic here of the noise that uh, the villain gets when he gets a knife through the hand. <laughs> is, is the villain a small child? No, he's a big guy with blonde, like, long blonde hair. <laughs> His facial expression is very funny. I'll send you the clip uh, what he after. Is it, it worth watching play. the film or just that? Uh, this, no, the film's not worth watching, but that clip's <laughs> worth watching. Uh, uh, well, that certainly was not nominated for any Oscars this year, but these five films were. So we're going to kick it off with a film that went into the Oscars this year as the most nominated film and it was a film that was highly tipped to win the big prize ahead of the ceremony and that film is Martin Scorsese's The Aviator. Uh, what do you got for me? The thing is, TWA needs a new plane. A modern plane. Oh uh, yeah? Kind of plane? Okay. DC-3 has 21 daytime seats and 14 overnight berths. Something bigger. Try 50 seats with a ceiling of 12,000 feet. No. no. 20,000. Think about it, Jack. What does 20,000 feet give you? Less turbulence. Right, because it's above the weather. Jack, we want to fly above the weather. Only 1% of the American population has ever set foot on a commercial airliner. Why? Because they're scared to death, Jack, and they should be. I mean, 7,000 feet is bumpy as shit. You know that. We build a plane that flies above the weather. We could get every man, woman, and child in this country to feel safe up there. An airplane with the ability to fly into the substratosphere, across the country, across the world, that is a future. I think this is the first time we've come across a Martin Scorsese film on the podcast, and I'd argue that The Aviator, despite the nominations that it's had, it's maybe one of his less revered films. I had seen it before in the, the mid-noughties, but I can't actually remember that much about it. So safe to say, I think I was looking forward to seeing it again, discover whether it was deserving of its Oscar status or whether there was a good reason I hadn't really stuck in my mind. Plot-wise, it's quite simple, this one. It's basically a biopic about a guy who is absolutely loaded, fucking loves planes and hates dirt. He ain't interested in spending his money wisely. Instead, he just spends it willy-nilly, which you see initially in making films involving planes and then experimentally a craft as well as his airline. The guy himself is, is Howard Hughes, who was a Texan oil fortune heir, and that's played 
you know, superbly, I think, by DiCaprio. And I think that was probably his second out of six films with Scorsese. And the film focuses on his early years between the, the 1920s to 1940s and kind of takes the journey and explains the reason why this billionaire tycoon in real life ended up spending the last two decades of his life holed up in isolation with tissue boxes for shoes. I think whilst this story involves making films, flying ridiculous planes, surviving a wild crash, and, you know, the character also dated big-name Hollywood stars, I think the real reason that Scorsese went for this one was the opportunity to explore the guy himself. He battles inner demons um, and his eccentricities, really, despite his life looking absolutely class. I mean, he's not really able to cope with the public eye and for some reason he just has a paddy anytime he sees dirt. So he's certainly got an air of madness about him and it's something that Scorsese has done it numerous times in films where the characters, one half of his life is going really well whilst the other half's falling to bits and the likes of like Raging Bull, Goodfellas and King of Comedy. I think my thoughts on it, I'm still a bit torn in this. I think it's it's a good film, but I'm still not blown away by it and I think perhaps that explains why my memories were a bit iffy of it. I think on the good side, it's shot really nicely, depicts the glamour really well. CGI is a bit iffy by today's standards, I think, but the cast is pretty good. But if you put aside how annoying some of the characters are, cough, cough, Catherine Hepburn, Kate Blanchett. However, despite the story sounding perfect for a film, I think the pacing's off, it drags at points, and it's definitely too long and kind of misses that wow moment that the plane crash should be. But interested to see more hear what you guys thought. I think you've probably summed up my views on this, Bingham, to be honest. It's clearly a very impressive film with a great cast, and I liked it, but I wouldn't say that I loved it. Taking it back a step, so this is a biopic, and this is a year of biopics. I think three of the films nominated for Best Picture are. So I would always go into any film like that, considering two things. Did I learn anything, and did it entertain me? And The Aviator does tick both of those boxes to different degrees. I didn't know that much about Howard Hughes before, but I think it did a good job of articulating what type of man he was and a large part of that's down to DiCaprio who got his second Oscar nomination for this film he's still got the young boyish looks from Titanic but he's really excellent here and it's probably the first example of him really grown into into a role playing a an adult character I guess Kate Blanchett she won an award for it I'm sure it is a very good depiction of Catherine Hepburn but the film is I really struggled when she was on screen. She is so irritating. And the film improved massively when she was off screen. I get that she was an important part of his life, so she had to be in it. I actually really grew to like the film more as it got towards the end. I think the last hour is particularly good. And without going all Bingham here, that last hour when things start to fall apart in his life, I thought was particularly interesting. Worked well as a contrast. He also starts to look and dress like Nick Cave when he's in his wee bunker room, which <laughs> I thought was quite interesting. It is too long. A lot of Scorsese films do start to go that way. But it's a decent film. Interesting man. Very interesting man. And I, I did enjoy it. But as you say, liked, not loved is probably my summary. Mason? Yeah, I thought this was dull, this film. I, I didn't much care for a plot. I didn't find his life story particularly interesting. Basically, as you said, Bingham, it's a rich bloke who pisses money away on air, airplanes and who doesn't like germs. And that is that strong enough for a film? And I know that, you know, Scorsese is known for his epics, but along with this one, it's got to be said, the stuff that he's been putting out this century is far too long. You've got The Irishman, Wolf of Wall Street, Gangs of New York, Silence. They're all three hours long. Come on, mate. 
I've, I've said this about Spielberg when we talked about 2005, but uh, this is not in his top 20. And the fact that this is nominated for Best Film, I think, is purely on the basis of Scorsese's reputation. I don't think that if this is directed by anybody else, it's getting much Oscar love. And the fact that it won Best Editing, I mean, it needs about three quarters of an hour cutting out of it. I'm not sure yeah. how it won that. I think you're right about the Scorsese thing. So at this point, he hadn't won Best Director. He would no. win it two years later. That There's definitely a bit of the Oscars where someone is seen as being due an award. So because they didn't award him for things like Raging Bull or Taxi Driver when they should have done, mm-hmm. then he's recognised for what some would say a lesser film. I've got to um, pick you both up on Leonardo DiCaprio, who you both said was good in this. I thought he was hamming it up massively. I, I always feel this when I'm watching him. I always feel like I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio doing some acting. I know that he's this is a pretty early days for him, but I think he's overrated as an actor, I'll be honest with you. And I didn't think that he... I mean, I don't know, maybe he did a perfect depiction of Howard Hughes. Maybe that's exactly what he was like. But every time he was on screen, I thought, oh, look, it's Leonardo DiCaprio doing some acting. I wasn't sold by it. Mm, I don't know if I agree with that. It's, it's probably... A, I, I, do, I don't know where you're coming from. It's, it's a fair point, I think. Uh, I've no idea what Howard Hughes was like, but I can imagine he probably did roll around like that guy. I mean, he had loads of money, just chucking money at planes. Interestingly, a bit of a side point, did you notice that a guy going through insanity hates dark? All he needed was a right kid wash, and then he was fine for a bit. Oh, massively! You, you see him; he's in that he's in that room watching pissing in bottles and uh, with like world's longest fingernails, talking to Alec Baldwin through a door, and then two days later he's <laughs> performing at a Senate hearing. I know it's mental. I thought that bit was great, to be honest. I found the political stuff much more interesting than the personal elements. So. The show trial bit, I think you've obviously seen that he's already starting his fall from grace at this point. He's retreating into himself and becoming that recluse that he obviously would become later in his life. But he's still got that great spark where he goes to the the show trial and absolutely rips them to shreds. It's that fine line between genius and madness, which I think is depicted quite well. I share some of your criticisms. I don't share the criticisms about DiCaprio. I think he's a really good actor and generally is excellent in pretty much everything that he's in but yeah fair enough we agree to disagree mm-hmm. there's another little point of the film that I was going to raise and I don't know if you picked up on it when you watched it and I thought initially there was something wrong with my new telly but when he plays golf against Hepburn and the grass is like blue or it was, appears to be blue in the telly but I did a little bit of digging on it and apparently that was deliberate by Scorsese because he tried to replicate how film was depicted in colour at that particular period in time, which is like cine-coloured and two-stripe technicolour, and then he changes that as the, the film moves on and as time moves on. And I thought that was quite a, quite a nice touch. I didn't really notice the colour changing to the film. I just thought it was bizarre, and I, I thought my TV was knackered, to be honest. I'm sure that if you're watching this film as a film study student, you could probably write an essay about it. It's the kind of film that I can see why it got so many Oscar nominations, because there's nothing that the Oscars love more than a film about filmmaking. They love blowing smoke up their own asses, but is does that make it a good film? No, I'm not sure it does. Yeah, you're right. It does tick a lot of boxes in that sense. As uh, we've touched on, we received the most Oscar nominations of any film this year. There's 11 of them. I'm not going to list them all. It did win five of them, so editing, Mason, you mentioned that. Kate Blanchett won Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Cinematography, Art Direction and Costume Design. 
fair enough, I guess, on those points. Yeah. But then we will move on to the second film of the episode, and that is Finding Neverland. Mason, over to you. What did you and Mother decide to tell us this time? It's only a chess cold. We hadn't decided anything. Stop lying to me! I'm sick of grown-ups lying to me! I'm not lying to you. I don't know what's wrong. Father might take us fishing. That's what she said. In just a few weeks. And he died the next morning. That wasn't a lie, Peter. That was your mother's hope. He barely moved for a week, but I started planning our fishing trip. I will never lie to you. I promise you that. No. All you'll do is teach me to make up stupid stories and pretend that things aren't happening until... This is the story of J.M. Barry, the Scottish author and playwright who's most famous for Peter Pan. And the film focuses specifically on his inspiration for that play, which comes as he befriends a widowed mother of four lost boys. As the film progresses, we see how Barry sacrifices his own relationship with his wife in order to spend more and more time with this family, eventually using them as an inspiration to write Peter Pan. Now, I mentioned that Barry is a Scottish author, um, so you might be thinking he's played by... Maybe Ewan McGregor, or perhaps a young James McAvoy, but nope, he's played by Johnny Depp, the recently cancelled Johnny Depp, who is doing what I'm going to say is a passable Scottish accent, but we'll uh, come back to that later. So in what's a pretty Oscar-laden cast, we've also got Kate Winslet, who plays the widow, Julie Christie as her mother and the inspiration for Captain Hook, and we've got a friend of the show, been in it a few times, Dustin Hoffman as uh, the theatre manager who works with Barry. So, on to what we thought. So, I wasn't looking forward to this film. Now, I know I said that The Aviator was boring, and hands up, I was expecting this film to be boring too. So, I found it to be predictable, cliched, syrupy, and completely unsubtle. But, let me tell you, this film goes down an absolute treat on a Sunday afternoon with a cup of tea, and I liked it. For a start, I usually can't stand films with precocious children in it. And I'm speaking as a former precocious child. So I know what I'm talking about here. And uh, all the kids here have got the potential to be annoying. But do you know what? It reminded me of films like Mary Poppins and even the original Willy Wonka film. In that the kids are, to be honest, quite maybe heartwarming, I'm going to say. Uh, I also like the, the glaring nods to the story of Peter Pan. Again, it's not subtle about it, but I quite liked it. There's also a couple of classic cinema tropes, e.g. if someone coughs on camera, they're definitely going to die later on in the film. I even went along with the sympathetic portrayal of Barry, despite, you know, he's not a nice guy. He makes an absolute mug of his wife throughout. He's also arguably manipulating a young family for commercial gain. I bet he doesn't give him any money out of the, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands he makes from Peter Pan. But, you know, maybe I was just in a forgiving mood, but this film did surprise me. It got a bit emotional at the end. It was a heartwarming family film, and I quite liked it. Now, I've got a feeling that uh, there's at least one person in particular on this podcast that's uh, likely to disagree with me on this, but you never know. Uh, so I'm going to go to uh, Scott Bingham. Did this film make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? Oh, my God. So to start off, Sunday's... I can't really, I can't really say what it's like to work a, watch a Sunday movie with a cup of tea. I'm usually in a deep dark hole, um, <laughs> try, worrying about uh, recovering ahead of work. 
I'll start by saying this film certainly didn't transfer, transport me to Neverland. In fact, it felt like fucking never-ending land, despite the fact it was only 90 minutes. This is a overly sentimental, completely wet effort of a period drama. <laughs> the listeners may know, I don't like period dramas, but I like period dramas even less when literally nothing surprising or particularly interesting happens. My first impressions were bad, because I've seen Johnny Depp and Freddie Highmore, who were also together in the worst remake of all time, which I'm sure we spoke about, which is Charlie and Chocolate Factory, so mm-hmm. I was already a bit annoyed. And I'm sort of thinking to myself when I'm watching it, how did this get nominated? And I'm racking my brains, and I thought, oh yeah, function of timing, because that Martin Bashir, Michael Jackson interview was 2003, so <laughs> the, that's how they've been able to attract you know, a pretty stellar cast to this. And it's ended up with a nomination. Uh, I could probably go on here, but why? What? Just share my sentiment. <laughs> uh, I can see why both of you have those opinions. Now, I, I, some have said that I am overly positive about some films, and maybe I will be a little bit too positive about certain films. This one is just a nothing film, though. I did enjoy it, and probably like you, Mason, it's enjoyable enough, but I can't understand how this is nominated ahead of something like Eternal Sunshine, for example. You also had films like Collateral this year, Before Sunset, some really good films. It's very forgettable. As you said, Mason, Johnny Depp's Scottish accent, I did think it was pretty impressive, although my first thought is, why is he in this film? This is clearly made for Ewan McGregor, and funnily enough, he would actually end up playing a similar role for the same director in Christopher Robin a number of years later. So I guess what you're trying to do here is you've got a film that is about someone who made another film. So it's a play in this, but it would obviously become Peter Pan. So it's a beloved movie, Peter Pan, and you're trying to recreate the magic of that film and the story of how it came to be. Does it succeed? I think it does to an extent. I thought it was more surreal than I expected. I liked the flourishes where it brought Neverland to life a little bit. I felt that the relationship that Barry builds up with the children is sweeter than I perhaps expected it to be. Again, could have easily been pervy, that bit. It could, it, it could easily have been, mm-hmm. and without getting into it, there are rumours about Barry and his personal life to that regard. But in terms of the way the film is, it's, it's actually quite sweet. I do think in this biopic subgenre, Saving Mr Banks is a much better film. If you go back and look at how one of Disney's films was created... But it's, uh, it's okay, and it did remind me of um, my attempt at writing a fantasy play when I was in primary school with my now we're friend talking. at the time. So, yes, uh, indeed, yes, I'm sure you do want to hear about it. So yeah, absolutely. It was called The Post Play, and basically it involved two children who transported themselves into a magical land by going through a post box. The logistics of this, I can't remember how we worked it out, it was uh, essentially a Lord of the Rings rip-off with talking trees, evil wizards. Unfortunately, did not get published, so... It sounds a bit like the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, maybe it was a rip-off of that, too. I was the yeah. less talented writer of the two. You've drawn of inspiration from a number of sources. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so maybe I'll dig it out one day. I think I've got it back home at my folks' house. <laughs> Fantastic. Look forward to that. I just wanted to pick up a point. I kind of agree with Johnny Depp's accent, you know, his ability to do a Scottish accent. I, I was f- trying to find fault in it. I just found it quite difficult when I'm looking at Johnny Depp when he's speaking the Scottish accent, but I think he does a pretty good job. But I could not get out of my head, and this seems to be a common feature of me in films, is in the BBC series Little Britain, 
there's a Scottish character who speaks in riddles and does a Scottish voice and does a yes and he speaks in a proper <laughs> Scottish voice and I just couldn't not see that with Johnny Depp and yeah it made the film better if he was in it to be honest um, I think how Johnny Depp does it quite well is he understates it there's a tendency when people are putting on Scottish accents to go really broad he's from he's just north of Dundee is Barry I don't know if that is a fair Dundonian accent he's, he's a lot clearer than most Dundonians I'll tell you that <laughs> yeah. I also want to pick up at you did make some sort of references to the kids acting in it there is one kid in this who cannot act it's the kid Michael I think who's played by Luke Spill fair play to the kid he's learned how to read off a page because he's like Mr Barry I want to go to the park will you take me? <laughs> I did check this actor out and yeah. Uh, I'm absolute panning one here. We could have him as a guest one time. I'm sure he'd. I'm sure he'd love to. But he's not been in anything else since, and I'm, I have to say, I'm surprised. The, the other thing that I was just going to touch on in this, which is something that I always enjoy watching a, a Hollywood successful film, is seeing random British sitcom stars just pop up in small roles. Yeah. So in this, you've got Gareth from The Office and Paul Whitehouse turning up just as random members of the stage crew. Almost as funny as seeing Keith from The Office in The Lobster, which is still my favourite random cameo. Yeah, it was good. So he's one of the guys in The Detectorists, which is about metal detectors that was on BBC One. Cracking, cracking. That's that's some Sunday night telly. Well, or Sunday afternoon TV. Yeah, I don't, I don't drink tea at night. Uh, come on now, you don't drink tea at night, mate. Well, the, the Sunday night's just about the point that I've pretty much recovered and I've climbed out my hole. Uh, <laughs> Ready to go again. So Finding Neverland End, probably not our favourite film that's been nominated for an Oscar through this series so far. It did get seven Oscar nominations, which is quite a lot, actually. Best Actor for Depp, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Score, and then Art Direction, Costume Design and Editing. Mm. It did win for Best Original Score, so just the one Oscar this time around. And then that will take us on to film number three for the show, and this film is Sideways. Just try to be your normal humorous self, okay? The guy you were before the tailspin. Do you remember that guy? People love that guy. And don't forget, your novel is coming out in the fall. Oh, really? How exciting. What's it called? Come here, Moss. Come here. Do not sabotage me. If you want to be a Whoa. fucking lightweight, then that's your call. But do not sabotage me. Oh, aye, aye, Captain, you got it. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. Oh, no, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot! Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. Did you bring your Xanax? This is a, a film from Alexander Payne. It stars Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. And it's a film about male friendship, essentially. So you've got two friends from college, Miles and Jack, who haven't seen each other for a number of years. Miles is a depressed teacher and an unsuccessful writer. Jack's a past-his-best actor who is mostly doing commercials at this point in time. And they get together to spend a week in Californian wine country to celebrate Jack's upcoming wedding. Miles just wants to drink nice wine, spend time with his friend and forget about his problems. But Jack wants to meet women and have a good time. Both of them are having midlife crises, just in different ways. I'd say this is a film that could be described as several movies rolled into one. It's a road trip movie, it's a comedy, it's a film about male friendship, and it's a satire of wine snobbery. Paul Giamatti is excellent as Miles, and for my money was robbed of a Best Actor nomination. 
It's a multi-layered performance of a man who's breaking down and struggling to find the truth in himself, and as such, he uses wine as a shield for his true feelings. I think the filmmakers here have to tread a fine balance between mocking the culture of wine tasting and the snobbery that can entail, and they do that to great effect, and also in finding the deeper meaning in Miles' descriptions of the wine and how he uses them as a, a shield for his true feelings. And I think this is most apparent in a phenomenal scene with Virginia Madsen, who plays a potential love interest, where they both talk about their love of wine, essentially using it as a way to get around talking about how they really feel about one another. I think as well, Sideways is one of the best depictions of male friendship I've seen on screen. It portrays the ridiculous and unreasonable lengths men will go to to cover for one another, most notably a classic slapstick scene involving a forgotten wallet and an angry naked man. And I think overall the best word I can use to describe the film is pathos, in that it's both brilliantly funny at times and yet deeply tragic in others, often at the same point. I think this is a brilliant film, and I'm keen to know what you two thought of it. I would describe this as a wanky film for wanky wine fans, but that's probably why I like it. But I will say, I watched this when it came out, and I have actually owned this on DVD, one of the few DVDs that I've kept. But I forgot how fucking depressing it is. For a comedy, it's really dark at moments. And it's, because of that, kind of hard to categorise. You mentioned, is it a buddy movie? At moments, it's a rom-com. Is it about one man's journey into depression? Again, it's, you could also say it's a love letter to wine. But the film itself is, is really good. Alexander Payne, who directs it, would go on to do a few more uh, excellent films. And you can see from this why he's had such success. I love particularly, I'm going to pick a couple of scenes that stood out for me. Firstly, when Paul Giamatti's character finds out that his ex-wife is pregnant, you've learnt all the way through this film that he's still heartbroken and he's still getting over his divorce. And then you find that he finds out that, that she's pregnant with her new partner. Oh, it's a superb bit of acting. You can see every emotion in his, in his face. I was genuinely heartbroken for him in that moment. And then the second scene is not too far after that one where he's already on the verge of a breakdown. And you think, okay, he's just found out that piece of information. This is him having his breakdown. He's spoken about how he's got a very expensive bottle of wine and he's saving it for a special occasion. Cut to him opening the wine and drinking it inside a fast food diner, drinking a bottle with a straw out of a plastic soda cup. You think this guy's given up. It's going to be a bit of a depressing ending. But the ending you've mentioned already. I love a film which has got a ending that lets the audience make their own mind up about what happens next. And this is an absolute classic of that genre. Cliffhanger final scene, fade to black, excellent. Really, really enjoyed it. I think this is a an absolute belter of a film. A bit of an underrated uh, or uh, unseen gem. Oh, man. I can't. You, you wouldn't expect this from me, given the type of film it is. But I'm going to have to sit on the other side of the fence. That, that, so that's the second time I've seen this and I think I watched it the first time you, you know when you're trying to find things to watch and you type into Google like best you know indie comedies or something like that and this came up and I watched it and I got bored and I thought when I put it on again I thought maybe I'm going to find it a bit different this time I just find it so dull and boring and pretty lame I can't decide whether it turned me for drink or, or off the drink maybe it put me off red wine I don't know and I was trying to think I was thinking to myself why, why did I not like this because this is like bang up my street man, depressed guy. But I think with these type of films, you've got to have a connection with the main character. And normally I'll, I'll get sucked in. I could spend all day watching them just juking about, not really doing very much. I just don't get that here. It's a bit too middle-aged, bit too uncool. I don't find it that funny. I couldn't unsee Mick Jagger 
as Thomas Hayden Church, except with mm. Pat Sharp shirts on. That's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> and I just think this kind of format, it's basically just guys drinking, chatting away, talking way too much about wine. I think it's probably better done by, albeit not a film, but Coogan and Bryden and The Trip, which I think their banter between the characters is a lot funny. I know that's not really the same format to compete with this film. I don't know, man. The guy's just... It's too much of a killjoy. I just want to grab him and be like, "Me, I'll fucking paint and lighten up." I thought you liked films about people's lives falling yeah, apart, and that's exactly. exactly what's happening here. I know that's what I want to. I mean, my point about it being very lame and just too lame for me to connect is there's one bit where they go to like a wine lecture and they sneak out so they can like go and kick about the casks, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, you fucking rebels, great." But, <laughs> He does pour one of the bowls that when you go wine tasting, you're supposed to spit the wine in. He does pour that all over his head at one point. Yeah. That's pretty rebellious. Yeah, it is. I mean, it reminds me, I went to wine tasting night at Majestic Wines quite a few years ago now. And I thought I'd bring a bit of rock and roll to the night. Turn up. get I get there. I was like, free wine in it. So I started, started drinking a few, got a bit pissed. And people are talking utter, absolute pish about the wine, you know, finding things that don't exist. And uh, I thought, well, I'll have a bit of this. I'll just start making up stuff. So I had like a full <laughs> group of people around me and I'm doing all the usual, you know, smelling the nose, you know, taking little sips and then describing what I was spouting absolute nonsense. Like, you know, I can really taste the mint in this. You know, I can almost get a feeling of the effort that's went in to make this. And, you know, honestly, these people are like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and these just weren't the salespeople at Majestic Wine. These were other random people who were, you know, drinking this. I felt like I had an audience when I was absolutely just making things up. I think the film is mocking people that go to wine tastings, and particularly Paul Giamatti's character, because he does talk in that, like, arty-farty way about the taste of the wine and the smell and how you're meant to drink it and what he will drink and what he won't drink. And then you've got Thomas Hayden Church, who's a little bit more laid back and is just along for the ride, and is just interested in women more than he is the, the wine. But I think it's more a character study of, of Miles and he uses wine as a cover for not being able to talk about his feelings and the fact that he is depressed, he's struggling and he's not willing to open up about that. It's exactly the type of film that I like, but yeah, I don't like this. You must have liked the bit. That's a funny scene where, uh, so he's a bit of a shagger, is uh, Thomas Hayden Church, and one of his conquests, he ends up leaving his wallet at her house. So he sends Paul Giamatti into the house to retrieve the wallet. That's a funny scene, a bit of slapstick. No, yeah, didn't fancy that. It's all right, but I was like, wait, why have you got your wedding rings in your wallet? See, I think that's when you know you're not enjoying something, when you're <laughs> yeah. just starting to pick away at the little things like that. I thought you would have liked this, to be honest, but I suppose you, you don't know, do you? The one good thing I say about it is that it, well, I might get my years wrong here, but Alexander Payne, I was going to say it set him up to do About Smith, but I'm not sure whether About Smith was before this or after it. I think it might have been after it, so that comment might be right. About Smith's very good. He's done some good stuff. He has, to, he has done some good stuff. Yeah, he's got a decent resume. Sideways then, it had five Oscar nominations. Paul Giamatti didn't get a Best Actor nod, which I think is a bit harsh because he's really good here. A couple mm. of people missed out this year. But it did get Best Supporting Actor and Actress nominations for Hayden Church and Virginia Madsen, Best Adapted Screenplay, Director and, of course, Best Picture, but it didn't win any of them. Next up, we have Ray, which is the biopic of Ray Charles, directed by Taylor Hackford. And after this short clip, we'll get into the discussion on this one. Hey, you see what time it is? 
What's the problem? What's the problem is, I'm the contract. That's the problem. Right. 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 You still got 20 minutes left. Okay, what you want me to do? That fool's gonna hold us to every second of the contract. Go go babysit him. I'll take care of it. It's okay. It's gonna be on the way. You know what they say. We got a little bit more work to do. That was the last song in the book, right? You know, Fathead, it ain't never the last song. Uh, Now, Ben, follow me. Do what I do. Say what I say. This is how we're gonna do it. Here we go. So this is our third biopic of the show. And as we've mentioned, it's a bit of a theme in 2004. And as the tune we've just heard suggests, it's about the life of the blind blues supremo, Ray Charles. So the story follows Ray, I must say, played perfectly by Jamie Foxx. A superb bit of casting here because Jamie Foxx at the time, not massively known for films. He had a good year this year, but... He hadn't really been in that much beforehand. Super performance. So we follow Ray from his early days, leaving home to play in nightclubs, all the way through to his fame, fortune, and his multiple number one records, as well as, judging by this film, multiple women. Now, this is part of a genre of films that I really like, which is the musical biopic. So recently we've had Rocketman and uh, Love and Mercy, uh, around the time of Ray, we also had Walk the Line and Le on Rose, four cracking films. It's This film does something that I'd say some of those films often don't do, and that is um, that they're not afraid to show Ray's dark side. So we see him in this film uh, cheating on his wife. We see him being an absent father. Uh, we see multiple scenes of him shooting up heroin. These are some of the best sequences in the film. I also love the bits of uh, the songs being built. In a lot of these musical uh, biopics, you can see they're going to they're trying as desperately as they can to shoehorn some of the songs in. And in this film, I didn't feel like they were doing that. It felt natural when you went into the studio, when you heard him composing uh, a well-known hit. And I suppose it does help that Ray Charles has got some absolute belters. He's got Hit the Road Jack, Mess Around, Georgia On My Mind. He's got some classic hits. And this film does, I think make you want to uh, fire him up on Spotify and, and have a, a little listen to him. Other things that I enjoyed from this, I think you get an idea as to what I thought of it. You get flashbacks to his childhood. You see how he became blind. Uh, you see tragedies that unfolded as he was a child and how he still feels guilty about that and how that affects his decision-making today. You also see how he got the strength of characters that you see him in him as an adult. And I do think that often flashbacks can be a bit uh, cringy or it can easily be a method for a lazy screenwriter to explain a backstory. But in this, I thought they were threaded in beautifully. Every time you went back, there was an impending sense of doom, knowing as you do that, oh, he's in this scene, he's not blind. We know that he's about to become blind. I, w- I didn't quite recognise the actor- actress that played his mother, but I thought she did a perfect job. And for me, this is, of the five films that we're talking about today, this is the best acted of the five. I've already mentioned Jamie, no- Jamie Foxx being not perfect, but... Uh, the supporting cast too are brilliant. I mentioned the actress that plays his mother, but also uh, Regina King, who plays one of Ray's backing singers and his, one of his lovers. Every scene she's in, she steals. And I'm not surprised that she would go on to win an Oscar for acting herself. And in fact, she's uh, tipped 
to be nominated this year for her directing. She's great in this. It's an absolute outrage that she didn't get nominated for Best Supporting Actress. I thought this is a, a super film. It was similar in length to The Aviator, but it felt much, much slicker, went past much quicker, and I really enjoyed it. Interested to know what you think, Watson? I think it would be easy for this film to be formulaic, and it does tick a lot of those boxes. You've mentioned a few of them, flashbacks to the tragic childhood that gave him a reason to be a success. You have the growth from lowly club pianist to the superstar that he became. But I think where Ray makes it really good is it's just got so much energy running through it. A lot of that comes from Jamie Foxx, a lot of it comes from the supporting cast. It just buzzes with energy. It's it's quite a long film, as you say. It doesn't feel long. I really enjoy watching the scenes of music being made, the creative process. There's a scene where Ray finishes his set early and they have to play on and they just improvise some music. And yeah, it's probably embellished a bit for the film, but it's really good. And the songs are excellent as well, so you can't really go wrong listening to his music for the length of the film. Yeah, I, t- I don't really have a huge amount else to say about this, to be honest. I didn't know a lot about Ray Charles before, so I learned quite a bit. I think it's quite good that it does go into the darker side. It doesn't just paint him as some kind of saint, as a lot of biopics can do. Yeah, I think Jamie Foxx is excellent. It's a really good film. And what a year Jamie Foxx had in 2004. He was also nominated for Collateral as Best Supporting Actress. Never had any nominations before or after, but certainly peaked in 2004, which uh, I thought was quite interesting. What do I think about this film? I think it was decent to pretty good. I do approach music biopics with a bit of scepticism because I feel that Hollywood is a bit guilty at just churning them out and inventing stories that aren't there. You have mentioned it, but the performance of Jamie Foxx, for me, will probably go down as one of the greatest acting performances, potentially, of all time. It is absolutely ridiculous. You know, he he, he even looks like Ray Charles. He walks like him, plays like him, talks like him. And that's not just Ray Charles in his sort of formative years. It's more when he's he's got a junk problem. And it's it's actually astonishing. There's quite an interesting story about what he he did to try and portray that. He wore eye prosthetics that made, made him go blind for up to... 12 hours a day, it left him barely any time to sleep and then he would practice piano in between and apparently also played piano, learned to play piano blind now he was a, a trained piano player and had a piano scholarship so maybe that's a little bit easier but you know, he is astonished in this film I do also like, and it kind of plays into some of the points what that you made that I like the way the film flits around quite a lot because it has to cover loads of things but I think that kept my interest, there isn't really that many long scenes, the scenes are quite short and it kept the story moving along and I think that kept me engaged than otherwise would have been. I suppose from what I'm saying, why have I said it's decent to pretty good? The Hollywoodisms start to grate on me. There's a lot of nonsense in the backstory of Ray Charles, which has been made up in this film, so he never got skimmed for money early doors because he was blind. That just didn't happen. He didn't watch his brother die, nor was it him not helping his brother. Did that cause him to have a breakdown? It was actually the loss of his mum. So I'm not sure where that came from, despite the fact Ray Charles was actually signing off the plot for this. Some of the bits were the songs. I know you said they weren't... I feel some of them are contrived. And then I've just got to say the ending is a prime example of this. It is Hollywood nonsense. So I think the finale implies that for all his sleeping around, he's back with the truth of his life, his heroin habits behind him, blah, 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 smooth, smooth sails ahead. The truth was way more complex than that. By his own admission, he kept cheating on his missus. They got divorced and he was an absolute alky, I would say a raging alky, and smoked loads of marijuana and he ended up dying of liver failure. So I think it, I do like that it shows him as a flawed character, but I think it 
ah, just that Hollywood ending really jarred some of my experience of this film or thoughts on it. But I do tip my hat to the fact they didn't blow smoke up his ass constantly, which was good. Some great tunes as well. Oh, yeah. If you like music, this is worth a watch. You just can't not watch this. I think just picking up on your point about it obviously not being a true reflection of his life, I think everything you've said, I'm sure, is absolutely correct. But I do think that there's an element of when you're making a film, you're trying to make it entertaining as well, whilst being true to the spirit of the character. And I think for the most part, it does get that. I don't think we would have benefited from seeing his later years, seeing him being an alcoholic. We've already got a sense that he's got addiction problems with his heroin usage. And I think in terms of the fact he was cheating on his wife, I mean, again, we got a sense of that. I don't think the film makes out that that suddenly stopped. It's just the timeline stops at a certain point and we don't go past it. There's always going to be an element of that, and especially when the people that are being portrayed are involved in the production of it. As we've kind of alluded to, there's much worse examples of that. So in recent times, you've had Elton John was a producer on Rocketman, which I think is a good film, but is certainly going to have sanitised some elements of his life to make him look good. I don't think you get that with Ray. I think it's fairly honest, or I felt it was fairly honest, not knowing Agreed. who about Ray before. Yeah. I did quite like it. It was a little bit long. I started to lose a wee bit of interest near the end. I liked how that someone had used Microsoft PowerPoint to to display the, the last bit to show his records. I thought that was a great <laughs> touch. Music biopics, I think you have to be a wee bit creative. And one of my favourite ones is Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll about Ian Jury. It's, well, that must have been 2012-ish, I think, maybe a bit, a bit earlier than that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good example of a thinking-out-the-box approach. But, yeah, you know, I don't think this was a bad film at all. And, you know, like I said, I thought it was, it was pretty good. And um, Jamie Foxx's performance was ridiculous, basically. Just um, when you mentioned good music biopics little chance to plug Love and Mercy which is about Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys that is an excellent music biopic and again I think in terms of portraying the creative process I've not seen a film that does a better job of getting into that so worth yep, watching love that film. Seen it. cool so Ray then six Oscar nominations it won two so Jamie Foxx won for best actor and it won for best sound mixing one of those awards that it's you have best sound mixing and best sound editing Beats me if you could tell what the difference is between yeah. the two. <laughs> also nominated for Best Picture, Director, Editing and Costume Design. So decent evening for Ray, which brings us on to our last film of the evening. And of course the film that won the prize and it's the reason why we are covering 2004 because it is Mr Clint Eastwood who is in the director's chair and acts in this film, which is Million Dollar Baby. Yeah, well it might be a stretch, but... Uh you got to get yourself a place of your own. Go around wasting it on things that don't matter, and what do you got? You understand? Pretty soon you wait long enough, you got nothing. Okay, as soon as I get the money. Well, I made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm just trying to keep you from doing the same. I know, boss. I'm not going to live forever. What is it? It's a tape on that girl in England you're going to fight. If you're going to go for the title, we got some moves to... Hey... Hey, get the hell down here. How old I am. Thank you, boss. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let me put this in the, in the machine. What machine? We don't have a TV. No. I like how you just touched on that there, that this was the main reason I picked this year, is we hadn't come across the big iconic Clint Eastwood. I like how you said he was in the director's chair, producer's seat, 
up on his feet as one of the main three characters and he also conducted the score which is absolutely excellent and you can find it on Spotify. In simple terms, the movie tells a story of a aging fight trainer called Frank played by Clint Eastwood and a hillbilly girl called Maggie played by Hilary Swank who thinks she can make it as a boxer. Narration coming from the trainer's best friend played by Morgan Freeman basically in Shawshank Redemption mode. From what I've just said, you'd be excused for thinking this is just a straightforward boxing film. But it's a boxing film, but by God, it's just so much more. You get sucked into this by the steely determination shown by Maggie. She does everything she can to get a chance in boxing, to be taken on by Frank, so she can escape a humdrum life. Her strength is like virtually unbreakable, and you've got a brute for her the whole way through it. You've also got Clint Eastwood in Twilight Mode, which he very much played later in Gran Torino, where he's like a cold gruff character is a bit of a loner with broken relationships he barks rather than speaks like basically a proper crabby bastard but he then forms like an unbreakable bond with Swank's character I think there's a real gritty edge to the film and a dark tone to it you've got the tremendous highs of Maggie when she moves up the boxing ladder then the absolute horrendous lows which during the last 30 minutes of the film or so which when I say lows this cuts bloody deep man and that's cut against, like I said earlier, a beautiful score, which is almost Morricone-esque at points. I struggle to think of another film which provokes such an emotionally deep response. This would have glass eyes, pishing with tears. And it's all down to the groundwork that the film lays in the relationship between Hilary Swank and Clint Eastwood's character. It blossoms into a sort of father-daughter, boxer-trainer. And I think it's one of the best examples I've seen on screen it's just one of those films, you, you know, you, you go to bed thinking about it, you're putting the bins out, like, the next morning, you're still thinking about it. It just plays on your mind. And just before I spin around to you, I, again, Roger Ebert pretty much summarised what I've just said in, like, one line, much better than, than I could have said. He basically said, a woman determined... This is about a woman who determined to make something of herself and a man who doesn't want anything for this woman and will finally do everything. And, you know... Great words. But I, I think it's a real masterpiece and I think it's the best of Clint Eastwood's films, Pippin, Mystic River. But, Mason, what did you think? Again, this is another film that I watched when it came out and haven't seen it since. And I'd forgotten that it was actually a film that's narrated by Morgan Freeman. And at the start, I did feel a bit like I was watching an audiobook. Films that have got a narrator usually put me off as I just think, why are you showing us this? We don't need to be told what's happening. We can see it on screen. So... After the first 20 minutes or so, I was thinking, this film is actually worse than I remember it. However, it slowly hooks you in, and slowly and slowly you start to care about every one of the characters, even the supporting characters. You mentioned Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, and Hilary Swank playing the title character. And honestly, there's, I forgot what the name of the guy, but there's a little guy who goes into the gym and who gets beaten up by Anthony Danger. Mackie. Danger, yeah. Oh, even even him, and he's only in three or four scenes, but you start to get really emotionally attached to small roles in it. And that's the sign of a good film for me. I also particularly liked what the film doesn't tell you. So, for example, you don't know why his daughter keeps returning his letters, but the Catholic guilt that runs through the film, you see him going to the church and speaking to the priest. Even though you don't get told specifically why his relationship with his daughter broke down, you can, by the end of the film, kind of tell why it did happen. The end of the film also allowed me to forgive the narration because you find out at the end of the film exactly what Morgan Freeman's narration is and that won it round for me. So yeah, I started off thinking, oh, 
I'm a bit disappointed with this, but by the end, like you say, it would make a glass eye tear tear up. I really got attached to the characters. Loved every single role in it. Hilary Swank's family, who are trying to manipulate her wealth and who treat her like shit and give you an idea again as to how she became the person that she is. Honestly, there's so much said in this film that isn't on screen. You could write it. You could write another film about any of the smaller characters in it. And uh, yep, absolute belter this film. Oh, well, let's make that free. I had first seen this film a number of years ago, and I don't really think it had made much of a mark on me, to be honest. But rewatching it, you start to see why it's so appreciated and why it's so good. The main thing that I've taken away from it is that this is a boxing film, and I generally quite like boxing films, despite being a bit indifferent to boxing as a, a sport in general. But it's actually the boxing elements of this film are probably the weakest in it. The fights that you see are by the numbers in terms of how they're portrayed but you learn that it's not really about the boxing elements of it, it's a framework to explore a father-daughter relationship between two characters the, the Ebert quote that you've pulled out there Bingham is a really good summation of it, essentially she needs a father figure and he needs a daughter and they come to each other at the right time and it's a really touching relationship between the two of them I know we do talk about spoilers in the show, won't get too big into it here because I think this is a film that you absolutely should watch, not knowing too much about it. But there are some absolutely beautiful scenes, particularly between Clint Eastwood and Hilary Swank. Clint Eastwood's just a a phenomenal presence. It goes without saying he's had some career, whether he's been performing when he was younger in the classic westerns to more recent years. He's just always got a great presence on screen and it's rarely better used than it is in Million Dollar Baby. And the third part of that, alongside Swank, who's also terrific, is Morgan Freeman. I shared some of the thoughts about the narration. It's a little mm. bit odd here because it's not consistent through it. It drops in and out at different times. Yeah. The last monologue from Freeman, though, it's so similar to the last bit of Shawshank. I would love to just play the opposite one over it and just see how yeah. it goes. But yeah, I mean, this is it's, it's a film that creeps up on you, is the best way to put it. Doesn't seem like much until it is a lot. And yeah, it leaves you thinking about it a lot after. Yeah, you could argue that this film did wonders as well for women's boxing, because back in 2004, women's boxing wasn't in the Olympics. Women weren't allowed to turn professional. Uh, there were definitely no, you know, you could ask somebody in 2004 to name a female boxer. Nobody, uh, I would imagine, could tell you one. Whereas now you've got Katie Taylor, who's from just down the road from me in Dublin, who's like an Olympic world champion. You've got Nicola Adams, who's uh, on Strictly this year. This film, I would say, brought women's boxing to the masses and allowed people to start appreciating it. That tells you what a good film is, in that it had a wider social impact. It's not just a film that you watch for an hour and a half to take up a bit of time and then forget all about it. People actually think about it after they've seen it. The other thing I was going to say, because I was thinking about Hilary Swank in it, and I was trying to think, I can't think of all that many films I've seen her in. The one that obviously springs to mind that she is a brilliant film is Boys Don't Cry. But I'm almost quite surprised that I haven't seen her in a whole load of films. And I have, she has been in plenty. It just happens to be that for some reason they're not, they're not ones that I've seen. But she is so good in this. It's just surprising, really, from a personal perspective, that I've not seen her all that much. The reason that she's not been in anything recently will make you love, love her even more because she took, I think, four or five years off because uh, her mother died and her dad got very ill. So she just took four or five years off to look after her sick dad. So not only is she a cracking actress, but she's a uh, good person too. She's a two-time Oscar winner because Boys Don't Cry, she won for that as well. I did just want to mention briefly her family. You could write <laughs> an awful family and then times it by six. Yeah. 
We've seen money grabbing families before that are just trying to get money, but I think what summed them up is towards the end of the film and they come to see her and they spend the first week before they come to see her in Florida's theme parks and turn up to see her with red t-shirts on (laughs) before asking her to hand over her money to them. I mean, they're dreadful. It does make you wonder how the person that wrote this film could also then go on to write Crash. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's Paul Haggis, isn't it? He's gone from surely a career high to a career low. Well, he was meant to direct it and it was just meant to star Clint Eastwood and luckily he realised he couldn't direct two films and he picked to stick with Crash. (laughs) Eastwood's did win Best Director, so it's it's not that it went unnoticed, but his directing in this is really important to how good it is. It's that classic Clint Eastwood style. Like he's, He's not a director known for visual flourishes or stylish ticks. He's quite unfussy. He knows how to get good performances out of his actors. And in a story like this, that's what it needs. It needs to take a step back and just allow the performances to do the heavy lifting. And, and by God, they do in this. So yes, a million dollar baby, obviously best picture winner. It also won best actress for Hilary Swank and Morgan Freeman won best supporting actor. Clint Eastwood won best director. He was nominated for best actor, but did not win that. Uh, And it was also nominated for best adapted screenplay and best film editing. So then that brings us to the end of this show. So folks, which one are we picking as our our favourite out of the the five this time? So we'll start with you, Bingham. I think this one's going to be obvious. Yeah, it's pretty obvious for me, isn't it? A million dollar baby, so they got this right. And for me, it's one of the best films of the last 20 years. Cool. And Mason? Do you know what? Before we started, if you'd have asked me, I would have probably said Ray. But hearing how Bingham spoke about Million Dollar Baby has tipped me towards that one. So I'm going to also agree and say Million Dollar Baby. Oh, you've been persuaded. I have. Well, I'm going to differ as much as I did like Million Dollar Baby sideways as my favourite of these films. That would be my pick, but I am outvoted. So we've plumped for a million dollar baby. And then that leaves us to discuss which year we're going to cover next. And it's my turn to pick the year. And right up to this moment, I've still not decided. I've got two options (laughs) that I've got nailed down here. And it's it's a tough one to decide between these two. But I am going to go for 1997. So returning to the 90s for the second time in the series. And the reason I've gone for this is I think there's some really interesting film for us to discuss. And certainly one that I think is going to generate quite a lot of debate. So this year we have As Good As It Gets, which is a romantic comedy about a cynical novelist with OCD. Sounds like your future, Bingham. (laughs) We then have another British comedy. I say another, we've only had one. But this time it's The Full Monty, which is, of course, about a bunch of lads from up north getting their kit off. So something that might remind you of your youth, Mason. Uh, We'll talk about that when we record. (laughs) We also have LA Confidential, which is a neo-noir crime film based on James Elroy's novel. It's about police corruption in amongst the sleazy side of Hollywood, breakout roles for Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, pretty well-known film. I'm sure you've both seen it before. Yeah. I'm sure you've also seen this film before, which is Goodwill Hunting. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wrote this in their early 20s, probably best known for Robin Williams' performance as the therapist in the film. And then finally, a film that is an absolute juggernaut and never fails to provoke discussion, which is Titanic. And that's a film that I am really excited to talk about. But I would ask you to just hold your initial thoughts on that until we get to the recording. Okay. Well, my lips are sealed. <laughs> yeah. 
I wonder if it's going to be more Leonardo DiCaprio doing some acting. Well, there is Leonardo DiCaprio and there is acting in it, so I'm sure uh, <laughs> I'm sure that'll be covered off. That brings us to the end of 2004 and this episode of Revisiting the Oscars. So thank you, everybody, for listening and thank you to my two co-hosts for joining me again today. Sure, I've enjoyed that. We will be back soon, hopefully before Christmas. I think we're going to aim for it if we can and we'll speak to you all then. Thanks, bye. Cheers, bye. Cheers. Follow you, don't look back. I'm telling you.